Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So today, right now, all the states who've signed up to the International Criminal Courts, and even some who haven't, are meeting at the United Nations headquarters in New York for the annual shindig known as the Assembly of States Parties. We usually do try to attend, but our asymmetrical haircuts budget doesn't quite stretch that far. So we're just commenting as it all kicks off from the sidelines and we'll watch from The Hague and from me and Vilnius from Janet to see the results. Yeah, so for today, we'll just uh, cover the hottest topic for us both, the Israel-Palestine conflict and the ICC investigations. And with the help of Janet, who looked at all of this before, we'll have a good look at the budget numbers. Exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we'll do a bit of speculation about the judges' elections um, by remembering some of what it was like nine years ago. And the big news for us uh, was Thursday last week that Karim Khan, the prosecutor of the ICC, was in Israel and then in the Palestine uh, occupied territory. Uh, it caused a bit of annoyance with some of us in the media because we'd really like to know about this stuff in advance so we could have, you know, camera crews and, and, and other journalists in the right places where he is. Yeah, but beyond the logistics, which are in fact really important, um, because exactly who he met, when he met them, where he went to, and exactly where he had a photograph taken were like microscopically examined. And it looks like from the outset uh, that Karim Khan was very deliberately leading with a visit to Israel itself. As he said, he was there at the request of the families of the hostages. So just a Quick reminder, uh, the world's attention has been focused on specifically the Gaza Strip. On October 7th, Hamas and other Palestinian fighters managed to attack nearby Israeli towns and villages, killing an estimated 1,200 people and kidnapping some 200 plus. Since then, Israel has launched a massive retaliatory attack on the Gaza Strip. Uh, They say it's aimed at destroying Hamas itself. There are more than 15,000 people estimated to have died. Those are figures from the Palestinian Gaza Health Ministry, but the UN deems them reliable, as we like to say at Reuters. Uh, Many of the people who died are children and the vast majority are civilians. Um, People have been forced to move from their homes and... uh forced to try and take shelter somewhere else. But the missile attacks have continued to hit uh, all kinds of targets, uh, things like schools and hospitals, and the hospitals themselves are barely working. Food is in extremely short supply and humanitarian relief is just at a trickle. Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, we've seen many settler incursions, killings of Palestinians, and that is all part of a longer term trend of violence against Palestinians under the occupation. There was a short respite for a kind of prisoner hostage exchange, but the bombing is now back in full force. To give it a bit of a fuller context, the ICC has been investigating alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity in the Palestinian territories, and they're looking at the period from 2014 onwards, and they have already concluded that there are reasonable grounds to believe that war crimes and crimes against humanity have been committed by Israeli forces and Palestinian armed groups. Now, I think that the prosecutor of the ICC, Kareem Khan, has a very specific diplomatic tightrope that he's walking here to get access to visit Israel. I mean, we knew that last year he was already lobbying to try and get there and it wasn't forthcoming. So now he's really making the most of the 
political clout that's represented by the families of the hostages who invited him to get there. And he's used that as a way to, to visit the region. And that's, though, much to the disappointment and even anger of some of the Palestinian victims' rights groups who say that they've been inviting him for a long time and he should really have been focused on their issues. I think he's kind of making use of that very narrow opportunity he's been given by the Israeli victims to kind of plant a flag in uh, the sand and to say that uh, the ICC is relevant, which is always a theme, I think, with Kareem Khan saying, you know, look at me, uh, the ICC is a thing, uh, and really warn also the Israeli government. So he's been saying this in various statements. He also recorded something that he put up on Twitter well, he was just finishing in Ramallah. And just to warn you, he was in a very windy environment at the end of his trip. And he provided a little summary of his meeting victims on both sides. I've had the opportunity to engage with victims and heard their accounts, their suffering, both from Gaza and from the West Bank. Pain is real. The loss is acute. And I really feel it's a privilege to have had this opportunity to speak with them. So here again, he, he really emphasizes that he met with both sides and he's trying to build up relationships and trust on with both sides. Yesterday I met Israeli survivors, Israeli family members that have endured so much loss, the horrors of hostage taking and the insecurity of the unknown about where they are and what has happened. Uh, and today, I've also spoken to individuals that have lost their families, loved ones, children, wives, parents in the rubble of Gaza. And he went back to a theme that I've heard him cover before, and he's gone back to stress it again and again about the basics of the laws of war, international humanitarian law. We've we've covered it also, and really the need to protect various groups of people, and particularly uh, hospitals and schools. Schools, hospitals, churches and mosques, dwelling houses are protected and must not be bombed. I made it clear what the law is in terms of the principles of distinction, precaution and proportionality. And leaving aside all of those issues, I made it also abundantly clear that the law can't be interpreted in a way that it denudes it from meaning, that hollows it out, that fails to achieve what the Geneva Conventions were meant to do, which is to protect the most vulnerable of society, babies and children, the old and the infirm, civilian men and women. And here he's clearly addressing Israeli military lawyers and their political masters who are have their own interpretations of international humanitarian law, you might say. Uh, they come up with what they say are military targets, but there are many observers that disagree uh, that these uh, could be classified as military targets or that they are, in fact, military targets. Khan also addressed the blockade and the need for delivery of aid materials, including fuel. I emphasized again that humanitarian assistance must be allowed in at pace, at scale, in Gaza. It is not acceptable. There's no 
justification for doctors to perform operations without light, for children to be operated upon without anaesthetics. Imagine the pain of operations on children, on anybody, or on any of us, without anaesthetics. And he came up with what I think is the key quote that I've seen uh, him say again in different contexts. He's giving an absolute warning to particularly to the Israeli side, but, you know, he sort of phrases it as being to everybody that he will be prepared to do something as the ICC prosecutor if they don't comply with the law as he sees it. But I was crystal clear that this is the time to comply with the law. It's already late. But if Israel doesn't comply now, they shouldn't complain later. What was interesting for me in that quote was that he said something similar in the um, in a statement he put out. And there he said, both sides should hold up international humanitarian law or don't come complain later. But then when he put out this video statement, he really, re he said Israel. And so uh, I, I thought that was a, a I don't know how much you can take from that, but it was uh, it was a change of tone. So, uh, for instance, for me, for the Reuters story, I switched out the quotes because he's very much clearly addressing Israel and, and making it clear he's watching Israeli legal process. And as always, that is because the ICC is only meant to get involved um, when or if a state is unwilling or unable to prosecute itself. So if it uh, shows that Israel is not doing enough to prosecute allegations of what uh, they are doing or investigate allegations, then that is where the ICC could step in. Israel has a fundamental responsibility as an occupying power, I emphasized, to investigate those crimes, to prosecute those crimes, to prevent their reoccurrence, but to ensure justice. And my office is investigating that to ensure that those rights are also vindicated. Now, again, I'm really sorry about the poor quality. Um, please, somebody get that man a windshield for his microphone or record him in a better spot next time. I, I volunteer as tribute to, and I think everybody on the on my media team and all my visuals uh, colleagues would gladly uh, record that for him with uh, with a windshield for the mic and one of those fuzzy uh, things for the mic because I was also looking at that thinking somebody get this man a videographer or like a TikTok teen who knows how to how to shoot these images. I mean, they'd also have chosen, I think, one of the busiest corners that they, they could choose. I think later on in this short video, there's also the sound of a mosque behind, which is nice and evocative. But yeah, again, I'm not going to pick out clips and or stick bits together where you've got to different voices of Muezzin calling uh, to prayer there. So anyway, my sort of overall comment on this is that I I can see that he's got a balancing act. As I say, you know, it's a tightrope that he's walking. But overall, it really feels quite thin, what he's got to say. I mean, he really just falls back on this appeal to follow international humanitarian law. And it's this kind of, oh, it's more in sorrow than in anger. I've really got to, to say, don't be surprised if I have to come after you. It doesn't feel immediate. It feels like it's dragging out the process. It feels reluctant even to me for him to place himself as the arbiter or the kind of the carriers of hopes to all of the victims in this instance. Yeah, I think for me, it had huge, you know, daddies and mad daddies just disappointed vibes uh, with this. 
he does seem to be kind of put in a spot where he has to do something that he doesn't really want to do. Uh, we'll see a different Khan in New York this week as he glad hands his way around the states who need to give money to the ICC. I think he's much more at ease in the kind of that diplomatic environment. He's very good, I think, probably with victims directly, and he seems very empathetic when he meets them. But when he has to talk about it, um, this is a particularly difficult tightrope for him. And I'm not sh so sure he's doing the best job of, of managing it. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. He's good with victims. He's probably good with states. I'm not sure if he's great with civil society in between. Um, but on the states themselves, um, I'm sure you've seen the same as I have. There's been a very deliberate campaign from the ICC to ask for more funding. Uh, come some quite slick videos that they've uh, come out with. There are the slick videos. There was the windshield and all the lighting. It was perfect. You should have taken these people to Ramallah with you. Yeah, well, I think uh, there is a cash crunch uh, that uh, the ICC has been facing. I mean, you know, we've all got inflationary pressures uh, and I'm sure there are a lot of demands on the budget. It does seem that up until now, the Palestine investigation was really not top of the list for handouts uh, from, from the office. And we should also mention that the Office of the Prosecutor has been clearing house coming up to the ASP. Uh, the Kenya and Uganda investigation were officially closed. Plus, there were um, statements that there would be no more investigations on the Central African Republic and the situation in Georgia. And we will come back uh, to those decisions next year and ask some of the implications of the people looking at that more closely. But on the budget itself, I thought it would be uh, good to share with our listeners uh, some of the basic notes that I've made. Sometimes I'm asked to write about it. I wasn't this year, but I couldn't help but uh, to check out the documentation. The court as a whole uh, for 2024 is asking for an increase of 16.16% on its uh, budget, and that would take it to 196 million plus uh, if they did manage to get it. They say that the court is operating in 16 different situations overall and that the Office of the Prosecutor is expecting to focus its investigations across eight situations. Let me just read them out. Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Darfur, Sudan, Libya, Palestine, the Philippines, Ukraine and Venezuela. And in addition, they've got uh, three preliminary examinations, Nigeria, Venezuela 2 and DRC 2. Um, and in terms of the detail of what the OTP is asking for, they say that they need 12 more investigators. They need two more specialised financial investigators. They need five more trial lawyers um, because they think that they're going to have more activity in the courts. That's uh, interesting, I thought. And uh, 10 support positions. They're also saying that they really want to follow through the suggestion on having field presence. They call it enhanced field presence. And that's for five different situations. Bangladesh, Myanmar, Libya, Darfur, Sudan, Ukraine and Venezuela one. And that just in itself would cost 1.2 million euros. They also want to recruit six associate country experts. I'm not too sure who would be funding that, whether that would be um, out of the main budget or not. And the thing that really struck me when I read it um, was that 
out of the Office of the Prosecutor's budget, there is only one staff member who is conducting work with respect to 17 suspects at large on the public arrest warrants, and also that there are a significant number of additional suspects at large um, where there are arrest warrants which haven't been made public, but just one person doing that work. So altogether, the Office of the Prosecutor has asked for an increase of nearly 24%, so nearly a quarter, and bringing it up to... um, 12 to 13 million euros. But I also had a quick look at what the state's own Budget and Finance Committee had to say. They'd gone through this proposal with a fine-tooth comb and they have said that they would recommend that the Office of the Prosecutor only gets an increase of 12.8% of nearly uh, 7 million euros. So let's see. Do you mean to tell me that there's just one person looking at all these uh, uh, who had to comb through all the former LRA commanders to make sure that they died so they they could stop the case? I suspect there must be some other individuals on the main teams who are also involved in all of this. But I I found that incredibly striking, Um, particularly if you remember the podcast that we did looking at track and trace for the Rwanda residual mechanism, the MICT, and uh, how they had to reorganise in order to try and find some of the suspects. I assume that financial investigators also might also have something to do with tracking people down. I'm, I'm sure there are other members of the team, but it was very striking when that was when I read that. I was going to say, probably the financial investigators come in the track and trace. But um, that's the budget. The other big event for states will be the election of judges, which as every year will be complicated. The judges have to come from different geographical areas. They have to have, you have to have judges from different law traditions and people with trial experience and those without. And you've put in the notes, uh, Janet, that this is an absolute condition. The bench has to have this variety. I assume you're talking about the variety of different law traditions and not who has trial experience and who doesn't, because I imagine that you would want people with trial experience above theorists, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. I agree. I think it's the different law traditions that have to be represented. It is very complicated, you know, which lists everybody goes on to, but, but that's an absolute. Okay, plus we need to have women, uh, more women, and um, the region and gender, though they only apply through the first four rounds of voting? Yes, this is when it starts to get complicated because um, I was in New York in 2014, with last time nine years ago when they were electing, again, a big bunch of judges. And I can remember it was a lot of rounds of voting to get to the end, partly because some of the blocks, like the African bloc, didn't agree amongst themselves which of the two different African judges everybody should vote for. So things did take a lot of time. But the the thing I keep on remembering uh, from back that time was the kind of lobbying that went on in, in the delegates hall. There was a Hungarian judge who wanted to be elected at that time, and he had one of the best moustaches that I've seen since Hercule Poirot. And his lobby group had kind of shaped their pieces of paper as moustaches and put them on the stick. So the idea, I think, of people kind of raise it up and and show their support for their candidate, it, it was a little bit odd, I thought, but also quite endearing. A big difference this year will be that judges have had to fill questionnaires to be vetted and have been publicly assessed whether they're suitable for the job 
or not. This is a push that came from the NGOs who are also really, really big on the vetting of the prosecutor. And this is something that the ICC ASP, I guess, has listened to and is really done this year. And if you're really interested in the um, substance around this, uh, there's a lovely informal guide that Liechtenstein put together for fellow states that explains how the long drawn out voting process uh, works. And essentially, it says, follow what the chair tells you to do, because the chair is the only people and the people around the chair are the only people in the room who actually understand what the process is. And it's not really up to states to understand that just do what you're told and vote for the candidates according to whoever is presented in that particular round. So I'm waiting to see, I mean, who gets elected. It's always interesting. And for the real uh, nerds among our listeners, we'll put that link to the Liechtenstein paper in our show notes so that you could follow along if you really, really want to. But I wonder how many people watch that live stream apart from you and me, um, Janet. Oh, I am not going to watch the live stream all, all the uh, all the way through. Um, I, I might pretend to at times, but in the end, we've got another 15 million podcasts to make and Christmas preparations to make, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, I'll dip into it. Let's be honest. Yes, same here. Um, thanks very much for talking me through the budget. And now I know everything that I needed to know, but was afraid to ask uh, for the ASP. And I hope uh, that our listeners feel the same. And um, we'll crack on with making more podcasts. So we'll be back in your podcast feed really fast. Bye. Bye. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has been recorded at home, but we'd like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub in The Hague. Music is by Audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. <laughs>